0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. The British Constitution is under big strain at the moment, not just because of Brexit. We're going to try and work out where it might break. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down. With a subscription to the LRB where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. I have Helen Thompson with me, Chris Bickerton, Kenneth Armstrong, a political economist, political scientist and a lawyer. The Economist magazine had a cover feature this week, so we're mixing metaphors here they had the constitution as a time bomb that's about to go off so where it will blow where it will break but there is a sense and i don't think this is just about brexit and we will come on to scotland and the uk more generally a bit later that the way we do politics in this country as a constitutional order is under a kind of strain that it hasn't been under in our lifetimes and maybe for longer than that kenneth we start doesn't have to be a legal perspective it can be any kind of perspective you like but from your point of view if you just look at where we are now where is the pressure point for you where is this constitutional arrangement under the most strain?
1: We tend to think about our constitution as being a political constitution rather than the kind of written legal constitutions of of, of other European states and if that's true then if there is a crisis in our constitution it's a crisis of politics. It's a, I think fundamentally an issue about representation, political representation, the structures in which people's views, interests, values are represented, and whether our current democratic system is doing a good job at helping to represent and reconcile those those interests. But
0: where would the pressure show itself then on that? Is it because after all one way if it's purely political it could come out is in elections. So we've just had at least one pretty strange election we've discussed it the election for seats in a parliament where we're not at all sure when and how those people will sit but what would be the most visible manifestation of the fact that it wasn't working in your mind would it be electoral or would it be say a breakdown between
1: the executive and the legislature I mean, clearly Brexit is becoming the kind of focal point for much of this discussion and maybe that's something to to think about is whether this is just a particular form of crisis because of Brexit. But taking that as it is, the pressure point is likely to be when the new prime minister takes office and when that prime minister then has to make decisions about where the country goes with Brexit. And if that Prime Minister, again, fails to command support within the House of Commons, then something is broken down at that point. The
0: mere fact that a Prime Minister could be chosen under the system that we're going through at the moment. Yesterday, the 1922 committee tidied up the rules, so we're going to get there quicker. I think July the 22nd is when we're going to get, and it always says in the news coverage, when we're going to get our next Prime Minister. But it must at least be possible that that's when we'll get our next leader of the Conservative Party, who cannot be Prime Minister. Is that possible?
1: They will become prime minister because that's the way in which our constitution operates. So it's not that they won't, but then the question Are they go and see the queen? I'm not yeah. sure that
2: that's true, actually, because in what well, way? because I think that someone can't be appointed prime minister without being confident that they have can command a majority on a confidence matter in the House of Commons.
0: And how would it manifest if? Well, let's say whoever—let's
2: say for example, Boris Johnson became prime minister, and it was clear that enough Conservative MPs wouldn't back him in a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons. I think that is constitutionally pretty problematic for him to become
1: Prime well, Minister. But we don't have any means of sifting that in advance. There is no mechanism by which one would know that was coming down but the line. It would have to simply that unravel. You,
2: that you could because you could have members of Parliament and the Conservative Party who made it clear that they wouldn't be willing to do that.
1: Be clear to whom?
2: Make it clear in public before the Queen had appointed Boris Johnson Make as it Prime clear Minister. To Twitter. Isn't that <laughs> in, in
1: which case, then you're hoping that that candidate is somehow going to withdraw. But I mean, if that's where the electoral process has taken the Conservative Party, that they have their person, they've been, they've been appointed leader, they by convention will then become prime minister. You're then talking about the Queen. The monarch having to somehow sift that in advance. There's simply no way that's going to happen. But we're also not necessarily, I
3: think, in constitutional terrain. The terrain we're in is the complete collapse of internal party discipline to the point that you would have a conservative leadership election process that would be preempted by some Tory MPs making clear that they're simply unwilling to to acquiesce in whoever the new leader would be and to give you know him or her support. That seems to me you know, a party crisis,
2: which, I mean, any constitutional order would struggle when its principal parties dissolve. That is true, but I still think it's a constitutional issue too because the Queen appoints Prime Minister, or the Crown, I should say, appoints Prime Ministers. And there are versions of this that play out, you know, in the middle of the 19th century where Prime Ministers don't get appointed by the monarch because it's clear that they don't command the the confidence of the majority of the House of Commons.
3: But that's because it's the formation of a British party system in its early years which became pretty consolidated, you know, over the course of the 20th century. And if we're seeing now its erosion and its transformation of some kind, where leaders can't come on the authority of their MPs, then it's no surprise, I suppose, that takes us back to some features of the 19th century. But I, I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to identify any constitution that would manage that easily, and particularly the British one, where political questions quite quickly morph into constitutional questions.
0: Because in a way, you could say that the nature of the crisis would be defined not by the failure of a particular prime minister to command the support of the commons. But if this becomes a repeated process, if we went through a series of attempts to form a government, a stable government, that broke down, or for instance, if we did have a general election, and people quite often say this these days, that made the situation worse, we got a more fractured parliament. It was harder because various coalitions are broken down within parliamentary politics to form a stable government then you are putting real strain not just on the political arrangements, but on the underlying rules of the game. And it's at least possible that people will start to think whether those rules have to change. I mean, I'm not sure how they would change, and maybe the change would have to be a change to the electoral system or something like that. But there are scenarios. There was a very good short article on politicalbetting.com, which is still an excellent way to read about politics, where someone's speculating what would be the odds of having four prime ministers in four years, the prime ministers in sequence being... Boris Johnson, it collapses. Corbyn, it collapses. Farage, it collapses. And finally, we get Jess Phillips, and order is restored as head of the Democratic Alliance. And asking Ladbrokes to quote some odds on that. Now, that would be a constitutional crisis with a nice ending.
2: Well, I think it also depends on what you mean by crisis, because in one sense, the crisis comes at the point when the existing constitutional arrangements can't provide any kind of answer. Now, that's complicated in the British case because the constitution is supposed to adapt to changing political circumstances so then you'd be talking about the adaptability of the British constitution having broken down and that's I think what we possibly in in danger of because it's coming under strain from so many different positions because it's coming under strain I think in significant part on this one because of the fixed term Parliament Act because this government would be finished if it weren't for the fixed term Parliament Act It's coming under strain because Brexit itself is a constitutional question. It's coming under strain because there's a clear conflict between the people in their collective capacity and Parliament, because Parliament doesn't want in the end, to enact the result. At least us one doesn't want to enact the result of the referendum. It's coming under strain because the, the multinational bits of the union are breaking down, as, as we're going to talk about. So the constitution, to survive, it has to be able to adapt to all those things simultaneously. And I think that's actually where the deep constitutional risk comes from, that it's no longer adaptable to all this at the same time.
0: So that then raises that fundamental question to go about where Kenneth started, started, and the economists touched on this in their analysis, which is is the problem here that it's not codified, that this system whose strengths were its adaptability under certain circumstances, that adaptability actually becomes uncertainty and ambiguity, and no one knows what's going to be the tiebreaker, and that there might be ways in which the codification of our constitutional arrangements would provide a kind of check to the chaos.
1: And I think when you think about codification, you're also then thinking about creating something which is also entrenched, That is a sort of higher form of law. And of course, one of the problems in the UK is we don't really have a capacity to think in that way between what we think of as primary law, something which is higher entrenched, you have different rules about how you change it, how adaptable it is, compared with the day-to-day law of statutes etc etc which are amenable to change with every new parliament so the question would be well what would you want to put into that bit which is in some way different which is more difficult to change and just to be clear more difficult to change here means there would have to be some barrier in the way of the conventional British view, which is Parliament can do whatever the hell it likes. Exactly, you would have some supermajority in the House of Commons. You need to have, you know, a referendum, whatever those things would be. You'd have to have s- some different kind of process, and we, we simply don't do that. Now, that of course gives the UK's constitution its flexibility, because you just have a set of rules enacted by par- statutes enacted by Parliament, plus a whole load of conventions, and in that sense, it is. We've got one problem, which is the point that, that Helen raised, which is we did try and codify one thing in ordinary law and that was the Fixed Ten Parliaments Act. But then we realised that that rubs up against what is our normal way of the political system self-correcting itself. And that's where we seem to have a problem. So when we have codified it, we've probably maybe done the wrong thing. And right. I think this is where some of the discussion about the nature of the UK constitution is becoming interesting, which is we've had experiments with referendums we've had experiments with fixed-down parliaments act etc but we haven't necessarily worked through what their consequences were for how the system self-adapted, the flexibility that Helen was talking about.
0: But isn't the point there, and it's again a criticism that people make of the entire devolution process, is that it was partial and it was piecemeal. I mean, what's the point of partial codification? Isn't codification one of those things you either do or you don't? You don't do it in bits. If you do it in bits, it's going to make the situation worse, isn't it? So some bits look fixed, some bits aren't, and then people don't know. I mean, after one of the questions about the
1: Fixed-Term Parliament Act is... Why don't we repeal it? Um, You particularly round about the Scottish referendum issue, which we're going to come on to. We do have rules about that. We've got rules about what's within the competence of the Scottish Parliament and what isn't. And so we know some things about that, but we don't know the same things about the rest of the UK constitution. So there are those kinds of gaps. But the question is, do we want to fill them in the same way? Or is it the case that we need to look really right across what has been A change in the UK's constitutional settlement over the last hundred years or so and say well hang on here how do we ensure and I go back to the point how do we ensure the proper representation of diverse interests and what are the mechanisms and means for reconciling those interests because that's at the heart of it. I mean there is a an
3: irony here which is that the UK always had a set of constitutional arrangements that were different from continental Europe and the degree of codification, the manner in which these things were written down, were seen to contrast with the British system. As the UK manages its exit from the European Union, it then eventually leaves, and in order to leave, it adopts or goes very much in the direction of uh, uh, of adopting a continental-style set of constitutional arrangements that are more codified. There is a sort of an irony there, which is kind of interesting. Maybe it's one of the necessary steps in order to leave the European Union, which may have functioned as a kind of substitute for a more codified arrangement within the UK, insofar as it leaves that there needs to fill that gap in in some way. But I still think that would these constitutional problems that we're discussing outlive the UK's exit from the European Union? Some would, I guess we'll go on and talk about those that are to do with the territorial arrangements in the UK, but some clearly wouldn't. So some of this is definitely ephemeral and uniquely tied to the difficulties that Brexit's posing for the currently existing Parliament.
2: I disagree with you on that, Chris, because I think that joining the European community as it then was was a constitutional rupture. It was at odds with the British constitutional settlement. And in one sense, there is a way of thinking about Brexit as an attempt to restore that older constitutional order that was ruptured with the European Communities Act in in 1972. But there can be no return because that constitution that existed prior to 1972 has been changed in any number of ways, starting with devolution but not ending with devolution. We've now got a UK Supreme Court, which we didn't have then. We've got the fixed-term parliament. We've got the Human Rights Act. All these things actually mean that the act of restoration, so to speak, if you
1: think of it in those terms, isn't possible. But interestingly, though, I think the crisis, though, is in some ways an old-fashioned political crisis. Minority governments in our system find it hard to get stuff done. That's always been the case. This is true now, and it's that capacity to form a majority government and to push things through which is the problem. I don't think. I mean, this is not the kind of constitutional crisis that you know says you know human rights are bad because they crowd out democracy. You know, we're not having that discussion about the nature of constitutionalism. This is actually quite a specific problem about forming and maintaining a government within Parliament.
0: Because one of the oddities of the last two plus years is that there was a point early on in this process where it looked like the Supreme Court was going to play a significant role around the sort of Gina Miller case. But we've heard nothing about the Supreme Court since. And again, a very different system. But in the United States, that's the manifestation of constitutional crises. The Supreme Court is absolutely pivotal to whatever the form it takes. Are there scenarios in this one? Are we? Uh, is this a sort of lull before the storm? Are there scenarios in this one where actually the breaking point is going to be the relationship between the judiciary, the Supreme Court, and elected representatives? Can you see a situation in which that would happen? Because it's... In some ways, it's surprising that the Supreme Court just does not feature in our discussions at the moment at all. Well, I
2: don't think it's impossible to imagine a circumstance in which a Prime Minister tries to prorogue Parliament, for instance, and that the Supreme Court ends up or a court lower than the Supreme Court to begin with, but would end up at the Supreme Court, declares that that's illegal. I don't think that's impossible to imagine at all. And that would be an unprecedented constitutional
0: crisis for us, because... These institutions
3: are so new apart from anything else. There's not a historical equivalent. But the reason a Prime Minister would do that would because of the composition of the current parliament. And so we go back to the fact I think Kenneth is right that, you know, on the one hand there's the contingency of the twenty seventeen election, which completely transformed the Brexit process, made it much more difficult in many respects, and has led, I think, to the present impasse. Now, the kind of scenario that you were suggesting, Helen, would be part of that difficulty that you have a Prime Minister trying to get through something in Parliament that they simply don't have the authority to do, and so they try and get around it in some way. But I think on the other hand, I mean, I think you're right that there has been a kind of constitutional semi-revolution in the UK across the period of its membership of the European Union. There's no going back, I think, to the way it was before the UK joined the European communities. I think that's, that's right. But that's not necessarily a problem. I think it's about what would then be the direction in which the British system would move? There would be a sort of a continued constitutional evolution post-Brexit, presumably to tidy up, I suppose, and unify some of these changes that happened in a piecemeal fashion, underneath the guise of the UK's EU membership. Because
0: that's the other question. It touches on this
3: point about what it would be to have a codified constitution and take some
0: things out of ordinary law, to put it that way. There's also the question about how you do it. What would be the thing that would stand outside of normal politics, whether it would be a constitutional convention or some other way of signaling that we're going to take a little break from the normal political process, we're going to gather people in a slightly different place and we're going to do the constitutional thing before we go back into politics. I mean, in a way, the referendum was meant to be a version of that. We're going to step outside the normal thing, answer a question and then come back into the normal thing. It turns out you can't just come back into the normal thing because you've changed the thing you stepped outside of. But there is that question. People often say we need a constitutional convention. But the time is never right. And yet, to go back to Alan's point about you you could have a crisis for the prorogation of Parliament and the Supreme Court saying no, that would only happen because of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, again, because after all, without that, you would have an election. There wouldn't be a question, I think, of proroguing Parliament. But if elections, because of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, have been slightly downplayed as the, the tiebreaker for any crisis... Does it create the opportunity for another space in which to do politics? Five years is a long time. That was about four questions in one. <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? I
2: do. I think one of the things though is, is that the Fixed Term Parliament Act has been in place some time now and the the damage that it's caused has gone on for as a consequence for quite a number of, of years. And so, so it's basically a decade. Yeah, and that this could be a framework, I agree, but right now it, it isn't. And that is is the rise of the Brexit party, which is a real complication for what I think constitutionally might expect to happen in the circumstances, say, of a Boris Johnson becoming leader of the Conservative Party and not being able to command the majority of the House of Commons, or indeed not being able to command a majority of the House of Commons, let's say, for no deal, is, is that he would dissolve Parliament by forcing a, a confidence vote that was lost, a general election, and then would essentially appeal to the people in a conceptual sense to install a new Parliament. And either he would win, or the party would win, or the, the party would lose. But we've now got new parties, you know, one that didn't even exist two months ago so that actually I think is a complication because assuming you went with the narrative that there is some sense in which the parliament isn't doing what the people in a conceptual sense ask them to do the way that the executive would get around that would be to appeal to the people over parliament and you get a new parliament and that isn't likely to happen in the circumstances of party politics and this is where we do get back into Chris's point is is that a certain point in the party dynamics And the constitutional questions become quite difficult to disentangle themselves from each other.
3: I was thinking, just to go to what the difference is between what you just described, Helen, and the possible emergence of the Brexit party in the context of a general election, and the emergence, say, of UKIP as another new party. I mean, new parties do emerge. They don't necessarily challenge the basic rules of the system. The only possible reason I could think of why the Brexit party might be different from, say, the emergence of UKIP is that this dynamic of the executive, the parliament, and if you like, the people, and the relations between that, and particularly the way in which the executive has started to mobilise a more direct relationship to the people, inverted commas, this kind of plebiscitarian aspect of British politics is beginning to become a bit more present. That then, you know, could introduce new dynamics, but that seems to me inescapably tied to the 2016 referendum. But another possibility
0: is this isn't really a constitutional crisis, but we have a constitutional order that has as one of its building blocks to party politics that essentially have government and opposition. And it's fairly clear that each organises themselves as a political party and that there's a choice and it is a binary choice on the whole. And other parties get squeezed. So that freakish poll recently that had the Brexit party just ahead of the Liberal Democrats and the two main parties neck and neck in a close third place. And someone ran that through the electoral calculus thing. And no one knows how these things would play out. There's no... But on that, you get this weird result where I think all four parties have seats in three figures. I think Labour comes top with 200. Then the Brexit Party have a chunk of seats. The Liberal Democrats have a chunk of seats. The Conservatives have a chunk of seats. And given how poisonous politics is at the moment, you might say, that's great. That would just force us into a kind of coalition mindset and people will have to work out how to compromise and to get along. But they don't. (laughs) They hate each other. And that could again be, I don't know if it's right to call it a constitutional crisis, but that's a kind of
1: ungovernable parliament. But it is, I I mean, I think it is about the crisis of representation because the two main parties have survived for as long as they have on the basis of being able to have broad coalitions within their own family of different wings of their own parties, different sections of society that they could appeal to and that people think, yes, that's my party there's a decreasing number of people who who now think the Conservatives or Labour is their party. And the success in the last election, in the European Parliament elections, was where voters could simply say, that represents my interests. And I can clearly see that that represents my interests. When it comes to Conservative and Labour, voters are saying, I'm not sure if that represents my interests, or I really don't think it does, but I'm not sure who else does. And there is it's that vacuum on the centre ground or the space occupied by the two main parties—that is the fundamental crisis. I think
2: the constitution has navigated its way around, um, or adapted, to use that language, complicated party dynamics before, including these parties. The two parties split it. You know, in one sense, you know, it looks like in the nineteenth second half of the nineteenth century, a, a two-party system between the the Liberals and the Conservatives. But actually, as we know, it's a lot lot more complicated than that because both of these parties at different times split. People move from one to the other. The Constitution adapts to the rise of the Labour Party. It adapts to the rise of nationalist parties in the different parts of the Union. I think that there is something about these particular party dynamics when it's allied to the referendum. And I think that that is the bit that adds the complication to it that is proving more difficult to adapt to but even then i'm not entirely sure that that's a sufficient explanation because i think some of the same things have been play with the way that the scottish question has been dealt with constitutionally
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax
1: and think about
0: work you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner
1: to go to Monday.com.
0: I want to ask Helen one more question then talk about Scotland, which is, is it possible, I mean, this may, this may not be part of the same story about the breakdown of constitutional order, but I was reading this morning about the people who might be the next governor of the Bank of England, and in the list, someone was listed as Boris Johnson's candidate, but who would be unacceptable to the bank. Now, again, if you think in the American context, there was a thought that the great blow up in the Trump presidency might well be between Trump and his presidential authority versus appointments to the Federal Reserve. Are there scenarios in the British case where that relationship between the executive and really crucial unelected roles? is where you get the, the point of most acute pressure. Can you imagine that scenario?
2: I find that hard to imagine, I must say, not least because we just don't have a, a way of which these appointments have worked, in which the, the bank has exercised any kind of veto, tacit or otherwise, over who can be appointed to the, the Bank of England.
0: But these are different times. That's, my, in a way, my question, it, because the other possibility is all of these things have become politicised in a way they weren't before at least potentially.
2: It's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not sure whether the whole position of the Bank of England has ever really been thought of in constitutional and, terms. And this
0: is leaving aside a McDonald I don't want to say McDonald government, a McDonald chancellorship and a People's Bank of England and just what that might mean in institutional terms. And these questions could become part of those Sort of points where the pressure is most visible. I
2: mean, I think that you know, if you go back to the you know, like the first part of the 20th century, is, is the question between the relationship between the Bank of England and the Treasury is a highly political question. That is why in 1932 that the Treasury takes control of monetary policy from the Bank of England and says these are political decisions and therefore they're going to be made on a political basis, and that lasts all the way until. 1997 1998 when gordon brown when he was chancellor made the bank of england operationally independent so the question of who gets to decide monetary policy and is that a political question it's very much been part of our politics but i don't think those earlier contests really played out as constitutional questions as such
0: could those questions ever reach the supreme court are there scenarios in which people would say you're not allowed
1: to do that So the issue is, are there rules on those things? And of course, where where you have a constitution that is largely uncodified, the question is, are there rules? And if they are, what are they? And you find the Supreme Court, first of all, having to find what the rule is and then try and apply it. And that was essentially what happened in the Gene R. Miller case. When these issues are about, particularly conventions, Supreme Court as in the Miller case, says things like, well, we recognise, we take notice of the fact that there is a convention here, but it's a convention that governs politics, and we're not here to enforce that. Politics is there to enforce that. So even if you get these cases into court, unless there are clear rules about certain things that the court can clearly interpret and apply, there's not much it can do about it. And that's been particularly interesting on, on Scotland in the Miller case, where on the Sewell Convention about the role of the the Scottish Parliament getting the legislative consent, whereas the Supreme Court says we recognise it's there, but we don't enforce it.
0: So on Scotland, I mentioned running it through the electoral calculus with the four parties. It didn't include the SNP. And again, on that, on current polling, the SNP have a chance of cleaning up in Scotland again. So there is at least a fifth party and there are others. There are the DUP and others. But this may be unfair, but I think the SNP presents the current constitutional crisis as a problem from at the outside that is kind of being inflicted on Scotland, and Scotland therefore needs a way out. But I assume also that in current Scottish politics, it's playing out through politics too. I mean, the SNP must have its own internal divisions on some of these questions. It can't just be that the constitutional order is falling apart in Westminster. And so this unified perspective in Scotland is that we need to be protected from this. What's the manifestation of the constitutional crisis in Scotland now? Where are the pressure points within Scottish
1: politics? The most obvious and immediate one was when the the Scottish Government published the Scottish referendum bill the other week, where it is trying to clearly maintain a position within its own party of this referendum is coming, we don't have it now, but it's coming down the line, and therefore we're showing we're still doing something to facilitate that by putting in place legislation that will then... Apply if a referendum is held so there's there's that there, which is an interesting piece of legislation i mean it's um it doesn't provide for a second referendum, it's simply a piece of generic legislation for what happens when you hold referendums in Scotland. It so happens, its only and really sole purpose is to provide the rules if there is a second independence referendum. So it's a kind of, it's been played up as being, you know, this is going to be the legislation which is going to allow us to have this referendum. But actually, it's not that, It's, it's fairly generic. But clearly then, this is a way of trying to corral the politics, to keep the politics moving towards a second referendum, but without pushing a button immediately to instigate it.
0: So is it evidence of an underlying weakness, or at least a fear on the SNP's part of really significant ruptures opening up within their own coalition?
1: I think so. I mean, certainly there'd be a a group within the SNP who clearly see Brexit as the the fundamental material change of circumstances that uh, Nicola Sturgeon talked about after the 2014 referendum that would be the pretext for a second independence referendum. So if you don't take advantage of this now, when are you going to then do it? but at the same time, without really knowing where the UK is going to end up with Brexit, it's a horrible time to then try and actually push for for another independence referendum.
3: Is it possible that the consent to the referendum being held in 2014 would not be forthcoming as easily a second time around? which would then push the UK into the sort of the Spanish territory where you have, you know... That's strong. a real crisis, yeah. right? That, well, That's a real crisis. So I mean, that's the kind of, you know, I mean, presumably I'm, I'm right in saying that the consent of Parliament to a second referendum is a precondition. But the fact that it was given once wouldn't mean it'd be given a second time. And if that question then became a component part of... British politics, it became politicised, then we would, I think, there be in sort of new terrain. Um,
1: And it has already. I mean, Sajid Javid tweeted that if he became Prime Minister, he would not, quotes, allow another referendum in Scotland. And of course, the, the whole point of the Section 30 order is to achieve consent between the relevant parties so that it can go forward. It's not meant to be a situation where a veto is played is meant to be something where you get to a point where all, all sides consent because they agree on, on the terms of the referendum.
0: But there are a, a range of scenarios in this possible fracturing of parliamentary alliances, the breaking up of the two-party system, where the SNP are part of the Westminster government. I mean, that's the other thing. We must at least recognise that there's a decent chance that coalition negotiations would be negotiations with the SNP to allow a government to function. And then Javid can say what he likes, but he's not going to be Prime Minister.
2: I don't think there's any way that Scotland can't set off deep constitutional questions, not just because of the the referendum issue, but because Scotland is itself a vexed constitutional question for the UK constitutional settlement. When Scotland joined the Union, it had to be part of the English constitutional order. All this stuff that we talk about, that's rising from 1689 and conventions and all that, it pre-exists. The Union, Scotland, had to accept terms, so to speak, that were English terms in joining. And yet, right from the beginning, the Act of Union violates the principle of parliamentary sovereignty in the sense of the idea that I don't actually think is actually correct, but we talk as if it is correct, that no parliament can bind a successor, because it's pretty clearly the case that the guarantees that were given to Scotland in that union, say for about the Scottish legal system or the Church of Scotland can't be legislated away by the UK Parliament and I think that the question about what authority the UK Parliament has in Scotland in regards to a second referendum is bound in some sense to bring up all these complicated questions about Scotland's constitutional place in the union. And that one definitely could reach the Supreme
1: Court. Right? I mean, It already did in one sense and it's kind of one of the forgotten cases we all think about the Gina Miller case but there was a the Attorney General's reference at the end of last year, which was to do with the, the role of the Scottish Parliament in onshoring all the the EU legislation back to the UK. And of course the Scottish Government was arguing that much of that would fall within its levels of competence rather than the ingathering of rules at Westminster and then devolving them back down. And the Supreme Court was was had to rule on that and in fact found that much of this was within the the competence of the Scottish Parliament. And so there is already a recognition of quite a fundamental change that has gone on there, that there is a parliamentary assembly which has very significant legislative powers in the UK outside of Westminster. And I think it is that challenge then to to what extent it continues to make sense to think about Westminster as the, as the sovereign parliament. But there is a difference, I think, between...
3: Negotiating questions of autonomy within a unified constitutional order, which has been, as Helen said, a long-standing theme in relationship to Scotland and then went on to sort of a different level with devolution. That's different, I think, from the struggle of a part to break away from the whole. And insofar as 2014 was still sort of broadly within the age of a more consensual form of British politics, this is not the case now. And in a sort of much less consensual British political system... I don't think you'd have a sort of a, simply a rerun, oh, go for it again, you know, we'll kind of we'll vote that through and we can have a second referendum. I think it would become itself a much more political question. And there I think it'd be very difficult to know where that could go because the SNP could treat it as a kind of quid pro quo for supporting a, a government or participating in a government. And that's one way of doing it. But if you look at the way it worked in Spain, the way the kind of the national question really transformed Spanish party politics in the space of just five years or so. I mean, that's a precedent which in the British case would mean that, you know, just politics changes quite fundamentally. The other thing
0: about the last referendum is, and it would happen again in the next one, the currency question is central in a way it wasn't in the Brexit referendum. And therefore, to go back to the point I made a few minutes ago, the governor of the Bank of England played a really important political role. What the governor of the Bank of England says in the context of the next Scottish referendum is really important. And that role could have been super politicised by then too. I mean, that is an added complication to this story. I think it could, if it looks like a very "quote unquote" English appointment, that's a real problem.
2: It is, but I think that this goes the other way around as well. I think, in retrospect, that moment in two thousand and fourteen, when Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg and David Cameron went to Scotland and made their vow, you know, that was in some sense the beginning of all this. Of this episode because it's an episode of constitutional I'm going to use the word in crisis because you know, those three politicians went up there they made this vow about changing the constitution to give Scotland more autonomy without any statement whatsoever about the consequences for the constitution as a whole without any consequences for the position of England in particular it's left without any governance arrangements with no consultation with Parliament no telling Parliament of that no white paper to you know articulate that position all the any number of conventions were thrown out of the window at the moment of that vow there is no way that you can change Scotland's position in the union without changing the rest of the constitutional settlement and that will play out then in the party politics if you're in a position in some sense like happened in 2015 where it looks like the SNP are getting close to power that will then have consequences in the rest of the union on a political basis it's inescapable because you can't change the constitutional position of Scotland without changing everything else.
0: So would that drive us towards a constitutional convention for for there to be that actual moment where we kind of pause or stop and, and really try and grapple with this the crisis probably has to get even deeper. Would that be the moment? Do you think? Just, or is it too fraught in that moment to step outside of politics because everything's been politicized? But
1: I'm still not sure what is the moment. What is the thing that is that? Scottish, right Scottish independence. But, you know, I think it's it's hard to differentiate the noise from what's actually happening at the moment. And I think there's a lot of noise round about the Scottish independence uh, referendum, whether it will happen. And is it actually more or less likely there would be a vote for independence if there was a referendum? The crisis might be around about whether you get the referendum at all. But again, it's unless there was mass support for that, in Scotland, then you know, there'll be many for whom it will be, well this has been something that the, the SNP have simply been using as a distraction technique for a long time, playing the constitutional card rather than looking at actually what the domestic politics is in, in Scotland and therefore whether there would be big support for a major constitutional moment to say we want a referendum, we are being denied it, this is the point where we have to find some means of settling it. I'm just not sure I see that happening yet.
0: Because on the Catalonian example, that's the other thing that we haven't really talked about. These things sometimes manifest themselves as, as street politics, mass politics. We've had a bit of that around Brexit. We've had some pretty big marches. But frankly, actually, I think that's been a fairly minimal part of our politics to this point. But it's not inconceivable that there would be a step change in the way in which people felt that taking to the streets was the only option and we're not it doesn't feel like that kind of crisis yet
3: does it I think no but it does make me think that the notion of a constitutional convention is in some way too too tidy no too sort of too tidy and ordered it presumes people's willingness to accept the deliberations of a constitutional assembly whether people would be picked presumably by you know along certain sort of a criteria including competence to discuss these issues In history, I suppose, constitutional conventions have not always been in moments of sort of tidiness and order, on the contrary, but there's just something vaguely implausible about it. Again, the kind of the fractious nature of of our politics made me think that people were just not really...
0: Do you feel the same about a Citizens' Assembly more broadly? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I sense that.
2: I think there's a good sort of historical parallel that shows that the Constitution could adapt to these, if you like, emergency constitutional moments, which is the Restoration. So 1660 is is Parliament has to...
0: I like the way we've been going further and further further back back. till we find our moment where we think it's going to be okay. No,
2: but this isn't isn't going to be okay, sorry, because it's not like 1660. Parliament has to summon itself, because there's no monarch. This is in 1660. Yes, the Convention Parliament. So that's a complete breach of the idea that Parliament has to be summoned by the Crown, but the Convention Parliament then acts as a constitutional body that restores Charles to the... To the throne. And then all the constitutional change that's happened in the I think going back to the 1630s is like wiped out. And Charles II is treated as monarch from constitutionally from the moment that his father died. But the point being is is that the constitution could adapt to that emergency if you like. But it could do it, I think, because the army had already made its agreement, or monk had anyway, already made its agreement for Charles to come back and Charles had already accepted the terms effectively on which he was coming back. So it was trying to find a way of constitutionally, if you like, ratifying what had politically been settled. And our problem is, is that we're nowhere near politically settling what a different kind of constitutional order would look like.
0: I want to ask one last thing. This is a sensitive subject, but I've talked to people, including members of parliament, who say we do have to think about this, which is at some point, there will be a transition from the current monarch to the next monarch. And that, could in the current context be a really fraught political moment too but also a fraught constitutional moment. I mean after all the the continuity in, in British history in the last couple of generations has been pointed out that the Queen meets Donald Trump. She's seen these people come and go. It's her 12th president I think and 11 prime ministers and so on. But we take this for granted. You know it's the thing that we haven't seen in our lifetimes which is or is that no, overstating? I thought,
2: no it? I thought for some time that this is both a, a politically very fraught, unconstitutionally very fraught moment to come that, I mean, aside from anything else, you know, we're living in febrile political times, but again, if you look at history, the death of longstanding monarchs causes strange emotions and complications in, in public life. It's not a, a minor thing to happen by any stretch of the imagination, let alone it happening in the kind of circumstances in which we're um, living in politically at the moment.
1: It's interesting to compare that with your Supreme Court. In other words, you know who is it we're looking to to try and restore order to provide clarity in unsettled times? Now, we tend to think well we supreme courts can do certain things, but we also worry about them then taking out the politics from this similarly with, with a monarch, do we actually really want that to be that sort of literally an authority figure we've talked about this before a real authority figure taking charge of this, and I think in a way politicians should think about that very carefully and think well if the penalty default is a core or the penalty default is a monarch having to sort this out shouldn't that really tell us that it should be up to us to sort this out because either of those options look pretty bad for us and actually not allowing those things to drift upwards or outwards to those levels seems to me crucial and therefore being very clear actually about what is the nature of the conflict for which this authority figure is supposed to sort and being very clear about Actually, what I think the problem we have now is that there isn't just a single conflict. Brexit is the meta-conflict, but within that there are multiple underlying conflicts. And working where politics lands on all these multiple conflicts is really what needs to be sorted. But
0: it almost feels to me like there's a game of chicken in that everyone knows that we can't allow the Queen to sort this out. But because everyone knows that, they're going to get closer and closer to that. Because there's this almost feeling that we will pull back from the brink. for that level of realism to enter it, we almost have to take that step over the edge of the brain.
2: But I think we have to be quite specific about what the Crown does. The Crown has a symbolic role in all this. It is the Crown in Parliament. The Parliament is summoned by the Crown and the Queen appoints Prime Ministers. Now... If the monarchy is being politicised, it's going to be around the second of, of those things. And I think that isn't unheard of either. She had to make essentially political decisions in 1974 as to whom she asked first to form that government, Edward Heath or Harold Wilson. So that that is in itself in unprecedented territory. But if, which I thought was a hint of, of your answer, Kenneth, you're talking about some kind of Republican moment coming when we have a different monarch. You can't have the present constitutional order and turn it into a republic without a monarchy because a monarchy is baked into the constitution.
3: I, mean, I agree with Kenneth. We should be very cautious about turning either to the Supreme Court or the Queen as these kind of authoritative institutions to resolve the present crisis. Or the um, governor of the Bank of England. Or just the just to throw especially another one especially the, the governor of, ba- of the Bank of England, um, whoever the next governor may be. I think the problem lies with the parties, and I think the solution has to lie with the parties as well.
0: On the question of the crisis of representation, not just the constitution, I'm doing a three-part series on radio four at the moment the second episode goes out this friday so you can find that on bbc sounds next week we're probably going to have to get back to the personality side of british politics because the tory leadership race is just about underway most importantly of all we still have a few bags left if you go to talkingpoliticspodcast.com you can buy them there they look great and they're really useful my name is david runciman and we've been talking politics Bags. <laughs> I And most importantly of all, we have a few bags left. If you go to talkingpoliticspodcast.com, you can buy them. They're great and they're cheap. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Uh, was that the wrong thing
3: <laughs> <that really> <laughs> you look, <aren't> they?
0: <laughs> They're not
1: cheap. No. They're reassuringly expensive. <laughs> <laughs> they're not
3: just any type <laughs>